This is a crowd podcast. Welcome back to the French Rookie Podcast with me, Tim Groves, ex-Scotland international and adopted Frenchman, Johnny Beatty, and former France hooker, Benjamin Kayser. We've got every base covered today because you were in Dublin, weren't you, Benji, for French TV? And Johnny, you were in Paris for the big one. So good weekend, guys. Go on, Johnny. Come on. You were the one privileged <laughs> enough to be in Stade de France. Mate, it was incredible, it. honestly. Uh, even at the start of the day, so it's not often, often, Benji, like you'll know this, at Stade de France, normally it's windy, it's wet, It's the, like, there's not many nice games played there. I don't know why in Saint-Denis, but it was a beautiful day. And then probably, again, we talked last week about one of the best games of rugby we've seen, but <laughs> we might have been top this week. It was ridiculous, um, the finish. But look, in terms of the... The reaction, we were sat next to Yashvili, the French TV boys. We were sat right behind the French bench. So it was amazing just to gauge their reaction and see how much they enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it for large parts of the game. Angry with a lot of the refing decisions that were going on. They couldn't believe the way there was, the game was going and then absolute ecstasy at the end. It was like they won the World Cup. So look, it was an amazing day. Another huge game of rugby to watch and look, an end to a game that I think if you got to watch it live... You count yourself very, very lucky. It was a, it was an amazing game of rugby. Obviously, I'm biased, and I think we are all biased. Every uh, team sport is extraordinary, but when rugby is good, it's just so oh, good. Man. It's extraordinary because it's got everything. It's unpredictable. It's full of passion, full of anger, full of physicality, skill, pace, whatever you want, you name it. And that's what I just love about it. And to be honest, is I would have loved to be with you, Johnny, in Stade de France because it's just a privilege to, to be there and to, to see it, you know, from firsthand. And I think the whole Super Saturday thing, I'd never really, I never really remembered probably because, you know, I used to play them. So I didn't really watch them on TV, but it, it is an extraordinary thing. And I do agree with that Super Saturday thing. It, it brings something special. And every rugby fan there had basically, what, six hours of what it was of extraordinary rugby to, 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 to watch. And we just, it's one of those days you just actually want to, you want to thank the players. You want to thank the coach for everything they gave because speaking about France Wales bloody hell the Welsh played well poof the first 30 minutes they went full tilt at it and they when they play that type of open positive fast-paced rugby they are pretty lethal, right? And and you gotta, you know, you gotta donner tirer un coup de chapeau, give your hat off, or whatever you want to say in, in English, because <laughs> because they, they can play, they can seriously play. So I was chuffed to be in Dublin to see to see Ireland England again, one of those games. If if ten minutes before the game there'd been fifty thousand fans in Aviva, it would have been you know no more noise, everybody uh, up and singing and and cheering for people. But it was still special in that France Wales game. I just can't get over it. Watched about seven hundred times the the, the 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 last play. Remember we said about the French teams changing. Well, we said about in Dublin for three what two and a half minutes or three minutes defended from their forty back to the Irish forty, and then the contest of Dupont. They were like right. They really shifted. They knew how to adapt on the day and to be uh, consistent and actually deliver a positive uh, performance. And that's precisely what happened um, against Wales. They had one shot, one shot to do it. They needed a penalty. Aldrit milked it a little bit, you know, Corey Hill off, off his feet, oh, mate, kick it boy. to touch. And then after that, they had one shot to, to do it. I was going mental at those scrums five, five meters out because I remember precisely from the 74th minute and 10 seconds until the 75th minute and 45 seconds, 
fuck all happened. Exactly. Because they recontested the scrum three times. And I know that if I was the Welsh hooker, I think, what's his name? I think it was Elias, wasn't it? Or Elliot D. Elliot D. That's it. And he's there. And that second scrum, don't remember, they over, they overcommit. And they come up, oh, we lost our balance. That's 15 seconds milked. Exactly. You know, and, and that's the one I would have done it 600 times. So now I was absolutely chuffed. Listen, they, they, they had one opportunity. They seized it. It reminds me of the Johnny Sexton drop goal at 83rd minute. It reminds me of the Welsh intercept uh, try after the Vahamaina pass. It reminds me of a couple of seasons ago, they were beating South Africa. South Africa were five meters away from their own line. And they up, ended up um, 75 meters later on the other position try and scoring. That's the top teams, right? You give them one shot, you think they're dead, and they kill you. And that's why I really do think France have just gone from being a good side to being one of the top sides. And we'll get into some of the moments in the match in a minute. But you mentioned it, Johnny. Last week, we waxed lyrical about England, France at Twickenham. The first yeah. half was the best half of rugby you guys have seen for a long time. Was this better? The first half was ridiculous. Like it was 17 all at halftime. I, I, within 20 minutes, there was tries. There was two tries each at halftime. Fireworks, good play. Weirdly, to go back, to push back a little bit, Benji, I thought that France in the first half were poor or they fell into traps that Wales had set in terms of like things that we hadn't seen. So we talked about their kicking game, being able to, if England just kicked down the throats, they just kick back. They don't get caught in this tit for tat. Whereas Wales you could see clearly kicked really deep and said, on you go attack. And they did. And some of it was incredible to, I mean, some of the work of Julan was just some of the best you've ever seen, but he was doing it out of his five meter line. out of his 22 and they were trying to play out and they were getting caught and they were getting caught in that trap. So I thought in terms of how the team set up, Wales certainly had the rub of the green in the first half, even though it was a draw going in at halftime. But look, they did fill into traps. They were a little bit disjointed, but I think they've almost found another way to win. So we'd seen, look, they can kick, they can press, they can fight, they can defend. But there, honestly, the last 10, 15 minutes was heart, hunger, desire and drive to pull something out of the bag because it hadn't worked. They'd been held up over the line, I think, four times. Yeah. They'd bashed and bashed and bashed and they couldn't crack away. And ultimately, it was Welsh discipline, which traditionally is so good. And they don't give away cards ever. But to give away those two in the last 10 minutes just meant it was game on. And that was a, the pressure and the drive. And the heart and the fitness, again, to be there in 70 minutes, where traditionally you wouldn't think that would be the case with French rugby, they were right there. And look, they, for me, they found a different way to win. Against England, it was starter plays. It was super rugby stuff. Here it was, we're in an absolute arm wrestle. This is a shit fight. Let's find a different way to win. Roll up our sleeves and try and buckle this Welsh team. And ultimately, you could play that last five minutes again and again and again. And that turnover wouldn't happen. Aldrich has obviously milked it. He's done really well. But how often do we see teams close a game out, pick and go, pick the ball, knock the ball out into stands, game over? A ridiculous end. Like fairy tale stuff for that French side. But look, they've just got the ingredients. They've got it in them now to find different ways to win. And that's what's so impressive. It was incredible to be there. And you said earlier, Benji, the emotions that that draws out of you as a supporter, as somebody that's simply watching the game, is incredible. You've both mentioned the penalty at the end now that Corey Hill... Mate. conceded Gregory Aldrich we talk about his carry and we talk about you mentioned it Johnny the fitness of the players we've been talking about it for ages but that is that is smart in in the final smart. moments of a game to, to be able to pull that off then isn't it yeah and you think as well like people haven't mentioned like Olivon and Aldrich they, they got through 21-22 tackles each without missing like 
phenomenal effort defensively, heroic, and then they carried and they carried tirelessly. But to show that little bit of rugby smarts, like you've got different teams that use different strategies. Some teams in those dying seconds will open up a space between two and three in defense, let somebody through and then block off the, the support runners and try and get a turnover like that. Some people leave somebody in a second line, like a seven. You see loads of different strategies, but there was no strategy there. That was just Greg Aldrich, smart rugby, smart man. And look, ultimately, he's got his team back into the tournament because they were dead and buried. With 10 minutes to go, you thought absolutely no chance they're going to get back into this game. And look, you can, like you said, Benji, hat off, wonderful smarts by him under extreme fatigue, 80th minute of the game nearly to save it for a side. Superb. It's almost the fact that he's smart enough, exactly what you said, Johnny, the 78th minute in the red zone to have the lucidity to say the ref is going to be very, very picky on those things. And he's looking at them. So basically, when you highlight them, you make the, the you make the the, the, the the decision making for the ref a little bit easier. I don't like refs in general, but hats <laughs> off to them because I thought those two games the, the Ireland, um, England one, and especially the, the, the France Wales were tough games to, to, to referee with, with some tough calls that have to be made and stuff. And I thought overall they did brilliantly well. There's been a few mistakes, yes. After Mohamed Amos got his yellow, there should have been a penalty try. So, you yeah. know, there's things that sort of counterbalance a little bit. But in the end, those really tough calls were made um, with, with with a lot of precision, with a lot of impact on the issue of the game. So, you know, so that means the stress, stress levels are absolutely sky, sky high. But to go back to your earlier point, that's, uh, Johnny, it's, they found another way to win. And that's precisely yeah. what I agree with. That means that they're adaptable now. They went from a demolishing game against England. They, I didn't see the impacts of the defense, like Tom Curry running flat out and Romain Tao catching this guy, Bully catching CJ Stander, you know, twice in a row after the five minutes. I didn't see those collisions. Bloody hell, I saw some fast pace rugby played on both sides for France and, and, and Wales. And that's what you said. They adapted to the opposition. I think, funny statistics, the only turnover in the ruck was Julien Marchand. There's been one turnover in the whole game. I don't think you ever see that. They didn't compete for the ball. They were like, right, they're going too fast. To, and both teams sort of did the same way. So it's more like the, the resilience of the consistency of the defense that worked, not so much that let's smash every single player that's in front of us, the demolishing game that was against England. And so if you're able to adapt to England, that means you can potentially adapt to South Africa and all those big, big, strong physical teams. If you're able to adapt to the, 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 the kicking strategy and sort of the relentless stress that Ireland put you under, if you're adapt to, able to adapt to fast-paced, super high-quality Welsh attacking rugby, that's when I, I totally agree with you, Johnny. They found another way to win. And that's a top side. And that's when you can say, instead of going for the quarters, we're going to go for the title in 2023. That's what they needed. And you've 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 mentioned it now, Mohamed Hawass, his yellow card just before Lewis Rees Summit's disallowed try. That is the one that most people seem to be agreeing on. That should have been a penalty try. Do you both agree? Yeah. yeah. In Dublin, the um, all the officials, well, not all the officials, but two, two officials out of four uh, were French. So it was Mathieu Renal, centre ref. Romain Poit was at the video. And uh, after the game, we uh, after the Ireland England game, we watched the France Wales game together. So for one, hats off to these boys because Mathieu Renal comes out of the game. He's like, you don't realize the pressure that I was under. Eddie I probably tried to email him or send him messages 750 times during the week. They send him bucket loads of video clips to analyze pressure on this, pressure on that. I was like, oh, yeah, really? He's like, well, Andy Farrell, what do you think? The same. So it's basically, there's a battle during the week. There's big, strong decisions. The first thing he asked me is, like, what do you think about the Bundiaki tackle? It's like, mate, it's, it's, I think you explained it perfect. Bundiaki takes the responsibility of trying to whack Bully Vunipoda high. 
unfortunately, and he didn't want to, but unfortunately, he went a little bit too high. That's the risk that you take if you don't go to the legs. He gets a red. Done. You know, and there was those tough decisions. And then we watched that game, Luke Pierce having to go with Wayne Barnes, you know, up to the video, up to this, to, to that. And they were like, right, it's this is going to be a really, really tough one. And they really care about what they do. You know, they put a lot of pressure on their hearts to actually get to get the, the, the decisions right. And so they were all adamant that I was is offside. He's the only reason why the, the driving mold does not go through the line because he is offside. And when it's at force, a meter from the line, you just have to give it. And apparently what they said to me is that where he made the mistake is that if you see that, you have to award the try straight away. Yeah, but he lets play the advantage, advantage play. Yeah. And then it, go back, it goes back to Luis, that freak of nature, Zamet, <laughs> who, who's basically up in the air and is this close to basically putting it down on the line. And it's funny, just for a, a funny story, that to tell you that those refs know what they're talking about, we're all watching the same screen. Zamet goes up in the air. I'm up. Wow, that's a good finish. Renal is like, wow, it's a good finish. Poit, Poit looks at me. He's like, no, he touched the line. He's like, no, 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 he didn't. At the first angle, he saw it. And then to the fourth or fifth angle, you do realize, yes, he does touch the line. Actually, it's pretty normal. He saw it straight away. I agree with you 100%. For me, that mall was on roller skates. The only reason it comes down is because Momo was pulls it down himself. You see Gazal in the press this morning, the forwards coach saying, look, he said we're, they were, were lucky, right? Yeah, we're really lucky yeah. not to get penalized. That should have been a penalty try, but it was a useful penalty by Mohamed Was. So I'm not angry because they got away with it. They know they got away with it. But my argument to come back at your point is if the referees know, could Wayne Barnes not interject and come back and award a penalty try? So if it hasn't been awarded on field, because I think everybody thought, look, that is clearly, like I'm in the stand, I'm like, that's clearly on roller skates. It's going to go over the line. That should be a penalty try. For me, should there have been help from Barnesy in the box outside in the in the car park to award that try? Because 100%, if the try isn't awarded after he's played advantage and he goes over in the corner and yes, he ends up in touch, for me, it should have been brought back as a penalty try. I asked that question because I asked about the Maro Itoje try, right? I was like, the question is, can you tell me a reason not to award the try? And she went against his question and said, it's a try, right? So it's that same argument. And basically the answer from them is to say, help is extraordinary. But if you know from the start, you can have uh, help from the side touches and they can overcall your call, your decision, then the center ref will not take any decision anymore. So they're saying to the risk of having some poor decisions, the center ref needs to be the guy who takes all the decisions. That's why when he calls for the video, he asks a question. He doesn't go, what do you think? Which is also pertinent for the Josh Adams try in the second half. So like the oh, French yeah. bench underneath me was going absolutely bananas. And for me watching that on the replay, it wasn't a try. But on field, it's been awarded as a try. It's an on-field try. And they said, look, from the box, can you see anything to overrule my decision? And so from the replay, Wayne Barnes says, it's not clearly held up. Therefore, I cannot overrule the on-field decision. And I just thought, for me, it was clearly held up. There's definitely a hand underneath there. It was, I don't want to say his name wrongly again, but Cretin. Cretin. <laughs> Cretin gets right underneath. And for me, he'd done a superb job. Like If I was yeah. him, I 100% think that I have fully held that ball up. But because it's an on-field try, it goes through. So there's all these little nuances that we're getting used to. And look, it just adds to the drama. But for me, clearly, the, the entire French bench underneath me was absolutely livid. They thought that should have been chalked off. And speaking of decisions, Paul Willems' red card. So not just the, the incident itself, but obviously after the game, Fabien Galtier was asked about it. He obviously is going to sort of play it down a little bit. He doesn't want his player to be banned for this week. He's asked for 
clemency, I think in French, which translates into English as well. But he did also sort of say that, look at the Welsh player's body language. And it may have been lost in translation a little bit, Benji, but he sort of said that the Welsh players suggested that they may be specialise in getting players sent off. Well, never forget that after, what is it? After 15 minutes, Romain Tao uh, broke his knee or broke his knee, hurt his knee. So he's thinking, you know, I have to start fighting for his corner like yesterday. My initial reaction is when Jones does milk it a little bit and come on, it's a clean. Yes, there's yes, there's a contact in the eye, but you've got to show mercy. You know, he clearly doesn't see what he's doing. He's a meter behind the guy. He doesn't have a clue what's going on. And then Roman Poitz, again, the experience looks at me. He's like, mate, just press pause. There's four fingers in the eye. There's no de- There's no decision of is it on purpose or not? Is it a good clean, a bad clean? Is it, Can he see? Can he not see? Four fingers in the eye is a red card. Done. Get the, get the emotion out of it. That, that's all it is. And now, now basically, um, Fabian Gelti trying to say, yeah, be, be nice, be this, be that. If you start letting those slip, and I want Vilemse to play next week, but I don't think he's going to play next week. <laughs> I don't think there's any chance, right? No if chance. You start to let those those slip, then unfortunately, what do you tell Bundiaki? Do you tell Bundiaki, oh, well, next week, next week you'll tackle a little bit lower? Yeah, you still took the decision to do that. So basically, every um, behavior, every sanction is to force the players to 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 adapt their 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 their, their technique, their behavior, and this and that. He missed the clean. When you miss a clean, you can expose yourself to a silly decision as to, to something silly. Maybe he would have not tried to hold anything by his knife if it hadn't been two meters away from the Welsh line, right? He would have missed a clean, missed a clean. I'm sorry, potentially he can get a penalty. But if you're the guy who misses a clean, who doesn't get the ball out two meters from the line to score the winning try, you can understand that on the Monday, you want to hide you know, in a cupboard uh, at the video session because you don't want anybody to look at you because you're so ashamed of it. So I heard after the, the BBC panel, Sam Warburton, I would not, not, uh, I do not agree with what he said about saying as a player, you can feel basically that um, that your fingers are touching something that they shouldn't, like uh, an eye or something he, you should have released. It's like, mate, come on. You played a thousand rugby games. There's no chance in the world that at the 78th minute, you know what you're feeling exactly when you're two meters behind. So I, I think that's bollocks. But but it's it's it, the reality is, he got red card. He deserved it, unfortunately. But mate, that's it as well. You put in the time context and when the decision came. So that the try had been awarded in the corner, right? So that was to take the game back to 27-30. And when he got that red card and it was chalked off, I think everyone was like, hearts in your mouth moment. You're like, well, well that's the game gone. It's finished. So you're absolutely right. The spark that it gave, the energy, the French boys, I think probably felt they'd been wronged or on the wrong end of a few tight decisions. It ultimately sparked them into life and brought them back into the game. But look, at that time in that moment, absolutely, you can't question it. Like, like you said, four fingers in an eye. It's a mistime clear. He's gone past, I think he almost heads, if you re- rewind it and look at it, and not slowly, but it's almost like his first option to clear is Alan Wynne Jones, who rolls out the way and he scuffs him on the way through, then misses his clear really on Wynne Jones and gets past them. Once you get past the point of contact and the collision's gone, it's then, right, can I find a lever? Can I find a handle or something to try and rip this body out and, and get it out of the way? And that's what he's done. So look, he's never in direct line of sight. He's not looking at somebody's eyes. It's not malicious, dirty, I'm sticking my fingers in your eye. It's a handle. He's looking for a lever to try and rip somebody out of a ruck. And unfortunately, he's pulled the guy's eye and, and made collision with the head. So in terms of the rule book, we're trying to do away with any contact with the head and, and contact with the eyes is 100% a no-no. You just, you can't have it. So look, I disagree with Sam Warburton in that 
it's not intentional, but look, we, we can't have it in the game. And so it's unfortunate. And at that point, you thought the game had finished, but you, it is what it is. Like you go through, you miss a clear, it's sloppy, and you leave the field. It's a red card, 100%. So you both agree it was not intentional. You both agree, obviously, a ban is coming. He's not playing this week against Scotland. Yeah. But what are we expecting? Because any contact with the eye, it normally gets a lengthy ban. So obviously, Fabian's asking for. Clemency, what do we think? I, ho- I hope it's treated the same way as Bundiaki went too high. I hope he's not going to be charged for eye gouging. I hope he's going to be charged for dangerous play, whatever that is. And then I hope that maximum it will be a two, three week ban. Basically, that's, that's my hope. It's going to be contact with the eyes, which falls into a certain category. Yeah. But is it like a Julian Dupuis contact with, with Ferris that we saw all those years ago, which was horrible? No, it's not a malicious, I'm sticking my fingers in your eyes to get you out of the game and make the, you make sure that you can't play and do you harm. This was a mistime clear. It's really different. So you've got to hope if there is a ban coming, they take these things into, into account because there's no way he should be spending like five, six, seven, eight weeks out. He should be back in playing his rugby for a mistime clear relatively soon. And what did you make of Fabian's comments? Because he did talk about the body language of the Welsh players, even if there was some lost in translation about Welsh players specialising in getting the opposition sent off. He, he's playing a strategic game to say that if he can fight Willems's corner as much as he can, put just a tiny bit of doubt. What do you think? The people are going to end up taking the decision, the commission or whatever, the sanction committee that is going to, to be gathered. They're definitely watching the game. They definitely listen to the press. They definitely listen to us, hopefully. Thank you. Hello, gentlemen. <laughs> so two weeks then, basically. <laughs> yeah, we said it's two weeks to so do it now. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's it's of course he he's trying to he's trying to fight his corner as much as he can. I just he's he's trying to defend his own house, right? That's that's all he's doing. Don't read too much into it. I think he's he's just trying to play a few games like like all the coaches do. Um, but deep down in his mind, he just hopes it's not going to be too lengthy. If if he thinks he's going to have him next week, I think he is fooling himself. There's so much going on and it's so hard to control that if you can point something out or direct the same way that Aldred did in the last play of the game, if you can point the referee in the right direction or help his decision-making, it helps your team. And so look, I don't think the Wales are any worse than any other team. I think that's slightly tongue-in-cheek by Fabian, who at the end of the game was also saying, look, it's just we're in a swimming pool of happiness. He was like, he was on cloud nine. So I think he said a lot of things in that after-match press conference. Um, I wouldn't take it too seriously, his actual words. But look, I just think there's so much now, a little bit verging on football. And we've talked again about the sort of the conduct that goes on and and the leaning on referees that traditionally would be left to just a one-on-one role with a captain, how they could try and manipulate a ref and and try and ease things. It's now the whole team. You can see the entire team now, everyone's throwing hands up in there. Everyone's appealing for things um, and it's just gone to next level. But ultimately, I don't think that Wales are any worse than any other team, just that in this tournament, they've had a few head collisions, a few head knocks, and they've had the rub of the green on a few. And in this case, it's gone the other way. They had two boys sent off in the last 10 minutes and they've lost the game. But I don't know if you guys saw it, but after the England and France game, Charles Olivon was really under quite a lot of criticism as a, a, on the saying that he dropped in intensity. So he had COVID, right? He was positive to COVID yeah. three weeks ago, but uh, no symptoms. So they're saying, did it impact his fitness? He's not really back. You know, there's a question of that. I thought against Wales, for one, he had a terrific, sensational individual game. I think he tackled 21 guys. Uh, he were, he scored the try that gave him the opportunity of scoring the last one. And imagine the, the, the number of interactions he must have had with Luke Pierce during the game with some tough calls. And I thought he did not lose the plot. 
I thought he stayed very composed, very smart, very British almost, uh, very Alwyn Jones. I've always, you know, that, that questioning sort of look to him. I don't agree, but I'm not going to get angry. And if I compare that with Owen Farrell and Mathieu Renal basically and Johnny Sexton, pretty much fighting the whole game for 18 minutes. And Mathieu Renal at the end is like, I don't know what's wrong with Johnny Sexton and Owen Farrell, but bloody hell, they did my head in. They were disrespectful. They were aggressive. They were yelling for things, you know, and, and refs, and like I said to you 20 minutes ago, refs have got such a um, huge amount of pressure on it. It's like when you have a shit day at work and stuff and you come home and, you know, and your missus has a go at you. It's just that added pressure on top. You're like, oh, come on. Let me breathe. There speaks a man from experience, Benji. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, obviously. But you know, and and I really like hats off to Charles Olivon. I thought individually he had such a good game, and I, I thought his captaincy um, leadership was was outstanding, showing that he was pissed off. Don't get me wrong, but still staying respectful and with distance and with calm. To add, Benji, I was super impressed by him as well. The, the one thing, again, nobody's even mentioned this in press. So he is, right, the number one line-out leader, caller and taker of all ball. He's taken 75% in the tournament. I keep banging on about it because I love it. He then also had to call with Valencia gone. Props had to come on for scrum time. Props were taken off. So he's lost more people. At points, he had Aldra at prop for his line-outs. He, he was the only option, and he called an amazing line-out. There was one overthrow from Camille Shah, which was glaring. But apart from that, you touched on the calmness and the coolness but again, it's not easy to be able to communicate, talk your second rows or your replacements through what they need to do in their single roles and how things change quickly on your feet and think on your feet like that is top class. To do it against Wales as well, against Tipperick, against Wynne Jones, against Alan Wynne Jones, these guys that can get in there and compete was really, really cool. And, and nobody's mentioned it, but for me, the guy that used to call lineouts, I massively appreciated what he did. Totally underrated, under the radar. The captaincy, his communication, scores a try, absolutely led his team fantastically, gets through 21 tackles, doesn't miss anything, and then manipulates his own line out to be able to stay in the game for the last 20, 25, 30 minutes, which is nearly impossible at that level. So, no, I thought he was world-class. I, I agree with everything you said, Johnny, but Paul Willem saying the line-out, mate, is like lifting a cupboard. So <laughs> yeah, it's, he's a lifter. It's, 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 yeah, he's yeah, it's different options, different <laughs> you, options, right? But that's it. You'd, you'd use him traditionally as a back lifter yeah, yeah. or he'd be he'd be a front roller or a pivot, but like who do you bring in and how do you change it? And I thought, look, you never lift Willem, so you're absolutely right, but he's a big cog and he's a big part of your line-out and you have to change, think on your feet, and he was superb. And you mentioned Olivon's leadership, Johnny. Obviously, you were there. Did you get a sense of, of the kind of momentum swings in the game that... Benji and I maybe don't get from watching on TV the kind of the chat amongst the players and also the bench because obviously we criticised France's use of the bench against England. Yeah, so Fabian was criticised massively last week. I managed to catch up really briefly with Anthony Jolon after the game and he was just saying, look, the importance and the role those guys had when the, the game was almost gone, I think, and it was a sort of last roll of the dice when they came on. So like Anthony Jolon was fantastic when he came on. Like some of his clears, he... he basically created two clear-cut chances for try-scoring opportunities from clear-outs. Like, you didn't catch it on TV, wasn't replayed, but he was outstanding when he came on. Roman Intermac, who'd only played 65 minutes rugby against Breve and was poor, really took a long time to feel his way into the game. He was outstanding when he came on for Jalibert. Um, Baptiste Serrain, a guy who didn't get off the bench again last week. Like All these, these guys came on and added something towards the end of the game, and they were just delighted in the role because there was massive criticism of Fabian and his use of the bench last week against England. Um, so for them, it's a huge thing to get that off their back, get on and add something to the game. And, and look, I think, honestly, the game was kind of gone in some respects for them. So it was a shot to nothing and they were just like over the moon. 
And I think we actually confirmed it weeks ago, but the tournament organizers have finally confirmed it's Friday night, 9 p.m. French time for the rescheduled Kayser BT Derby. Probably a bit bigger than the Kayser BT Derby now, now there's the title on the line. But hey, we'll still bill it as that. So we know France need a try bonus point and to win by 21 points or more to lift the Six Nations title. Do you think they're going to do it? So they have they'll struggle not struggle but they have to reorganize their whole their whole um, locks so that could be a tricky one. I don't know also because you know after the whole COVID thing they were told to minimize the amount of ins and outs of the squad. So if potentially they have Voki who can be on the bench uh, for who can cover both and they have Swan Rebage and Bernard Leroux who are back, then technically they're not allowed to. Oh, technically, I'm sure they can they can wiggle it, you know, but they, they they should be able to to go like that, and that's that's a big big change. So it's gonna be a huge game. I it's it's a bit like last week when I was really confident to see France win. I was really scared about the defensive bonus point for Wales, and 21 points against a full Scotland side is a lot of points. And that really scares me. So I do think they're going to win. I think they're a better side than Scotland. Uh, but I think Scotland will come with a bit of with a chip on their shoulder, you know, because they really peed off about having that game sort of postponed a couple of weeks ago when they were ready to go. So I'm, I'm just hoping for an extraordinary performance, but it will need just an extraordinary performance, not just a normal one. Score four tries minimum and have 21 point lead on, on Scotland. They can do it, but it's not just an average performance. You need a hell of a game to do that. I think it has to be their best performance of the year, mate. Look, under Friday Night Lights in Paris, it's all to play for. I massively hyped up that that France-Wales game because I was like, it's the first game that they've had at home. This should be a massive boost. And then they came out and struggled in the first half. Like you mentioned, the guys that'll come in, Rabaj, Larue, the second row will be filled. Carbonell will come in and sit on the bench. But weirdly, it'd be, it'd be a different case if it was a team that had nothing to play for. But... If you put yourself in Scotland's shoes, it's extremely unlikely, but with wins and bonus points, they can still mathematically finish second. And every single one of those Scottish players is also still fighting to get on a British Lions tour, which is the pinnacle mm. of every British player's rugby career. So it's not like it's a dead rubber for Scotland. If it was, you'd be like, possible 20-point victory, but it's not like they're going to roll over. It's not going to be easy. And I think also, in strange ways, Ways Wales also kind of highlighted different ways that you can attack this French side and there were cracks. So look, I think it's going to be much tighter and it should be an outstanding finish, but I can't see 21 points. That's my, I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I think that Wales highlighted if you kick to France and squeeze them now, potentially they're going to try and run everything back um, and you could catch them on the hop. I thought that some of their set plays from scrum, they really highlighted that you can get go forward against France. I, I thought that France defensively were different. So we saw a year ago a real blitz D and aggression, whereas against Wales, maybe it was because it was John Fox Davies and George North, they were much more passive and there were cracks in between that nine and 10 disconnect where they, like Reese Samet went through, clean through, I think twice. And I thought, geez, what's going on here? So there were little things. Gregor Townsend is an astute coach. They'll be confident off that back of a win against Italy. The rest of the tournament hasn't really gone their way and it's a shot to nothing. They'll be desperate to prove that there's a positive to be taken from this tournament and to claw their as far their way up the Six Nations table as they can and finish strongly. A, for personal pride and to get people on this plane for the Lions Tour. So it's a huge game. It's going to be an exceptional occasion, but a really, really tough ask. And Benji, it's not it's not bad replacement to have Roman Entomac back to, oh. to fill in for Macha Jalabert. But how big a loss will Jalabert be given the form he's in? Johnny mentioned Entomac has come back and obviously isn't quite up to speed yet. And also 
you need four tries and Jalabert has been brilliant on the front foot. The only reason why I'm relatively optimistic is because I saw the 65 minutes that Romain Tomac played against Wales. Uh, like yeah. Johnny said, so he didn't play against England at all. He didn't come off the bench. And the week before, he played his first game after breaking his jaw against Brieve with Toulouse and he played, played averagely. To be honest, when you break a jaw and you play number 10 and you have those big units flying at you after every line out, those big number eights flying at you after every scrum, it takes a bit of mental sort of preparation to get used to, right, my jaw is actually solid. I'm, it's not going to disconnect again. And I thought he played beautifully. He was quite um, sober. I don't know he said not sober, but, you know, quite relaxed and he didn't do anything flashy but he just shifted the ball and sort of had that um uh, orchestra chief orchestrated sort of a, a number 10 role that he normally he's normally a 10 that attacks the line a little bit more but that's what france needed against wales six months ago he was the best 10 in the world almost with yeah. uh, richie moinga probably uh, that he needs a bit of time that just having those 65 minutes means he's going to be even better next week that probably even not having the pressure of having Mathieu Jalibert on the bench, you know, to be like, right, you know, the guy is, his, his look is burning the back of your head because he knows he should have had the 10 jersey. There's none of that. So, no, no, I, I back him again. Jalibert was on a different level. He, he would have been amazing to have the both of them. Carbonel has got a big set of nuts and he can do some pretty cool things when he, when he comes on and he's a very good player. But I still think that Intamac, even at 85% of what he used to be, is still a freaking amazing class. number 10. So, so no, I can't wait to have him there. Don't forget his mate Antoine Dupont is his Toulouse partner. So he, they're obviously they'll feed into each other and stuff. Um, you can't start making excuse of not having Jalibert considered we've got Intermac. It's just too good, too big. We're too lucky. And that's it. I think if you pre-tournament, if he hadn't broken his jaw, he was first choice. Yeah. Like undisputed. So look, you're losing Jalibert, but France are now in a position where they're blessed. Like Louis Carbonel is also top class for Toulon and hasn't even made the squad because the two boys ahead of him are world class week in, week out. So I honestly don't think you're losing that much as much as he's been informed recently. Roman Intermac, I'm fairly sure, will still be the first choice in Fabian Galti's head and would have worked his way back into the side. And look, He's exceptional in that partnership you touched on with Toto Dupont, week in, week out in Toulouse. Easy to come back in and find his feet. And look, he was exceptional for 65 minutes. I said stupidly he was average in that game against Breve. But since then, he said three weeks of training. He's up to speed. He's been part of the camp and he'll be desperate to get back in. And we mentioned the second row. Willemser, Telfer Fenua won't be there. Is Bernard Lurie definitely back? And will it be Swan Rabage? Will they be able to call up someone else? Honestly, I, I don't know about that one. Like the bubble was meant to be airtight in February and then you could eat waffles. And then they said they were never going to have any more training partners. And you realize some sevens guys came in and some under twenties came in. And then you, I, I heard that you went down from 42 players to 31 player squads to make sure that there's no ins and outs and that they will try to make sure that the boys stay in that bubble the whole time. And they kept on rotating the squad nonstop. So I don't know what the rules are, actually. I don't know what that protocol seriously says. Uh, look, they, they, after being properly, you know, sort of hit on the fingers like, like a student by the teacher um, after the sort of the, the whole bubble gate, they said that they weren't going to rotate. And then last week, still Winnie Antonio and Arthur Vincent came back. Because, uh, but because they were positive to COVID, I think you consider that they can't have it again. So I don't know. All I know is that there's Swan Rebage, there's Bernard Leroux, and potentially Uwoki or Jelonge, whoever can be on the bench basically to cover that position. If they need to call somebody, it'll most probably be Cyril Cazot, but he hurt his calf yeah. on the Tuesday before the game. So I don't know if he's back fit or not. But uh, to be honest, that's, again, I think they can do with what they've got already. So logically, you had you had Bernie LaRue and you had Woki were both at the game. 
And Bernie LaRue, if he'd passed his fitness test last week, he would have been involved in some shape or form. Yeah. So that's it. I think if if Bernard LaRue passes his fitness test and can train the start of the week, or even if he can't train, but he's fit for the game, can do team run and play, he will 100% play. And logically, if Voki was there and he was 25th man, 24th man, he shifts up and he's your bench number because he's a yeah. standing lineup. Can, he's a hybrid. He can play both, as can Anthony Jalon. Scotland's issue would be that they've got a depth chart that's maybe two or three deep. But France have got four or five guys that they can bring in. And look, these guys are top class and they know how to operate this level. So like Bernard Lure for me, 100%. If he, if he is fit at all, any way, shape or form, if he's 50% fit and he can hobble around the pitch, he plays. And Scotland, Johnny, they warmed up for France this weekend by dispatching Italy, who have officially had their worst ever Six Nations when it comes to points difference, points conceded, tries conceded, all that. What did you make of that performance? Obviously, Stuart Hoggart at 10, Finn will be back this week. So how do you think they'll approach the, the game in Paris this week? Look, I think that they will just try to win the game classically. I think that France obviously need bonus points and therefore need to score 21 points difference. So they're going to refuse... Pot shots for three, they have to go to touch, get tries on the board and get the ball rolling. Scotland really just have to work their way into this game and try and squeeze France and try and force them to make mistakes. But look, I think they'll play their own game. Once they get into France's 40, if they can hold on to ball, it's how you pressurise them, how you work them and how you try and crack their defence. You're obviously coming up against Fiku, Vakatawa, exceptional in the midfield, so really hard going. And guys like Hugh Jones, who's signed for Bayonne for next season, who's come back in, and actually looks red hot. Every time he gets ball on hand, he's electric. Um, so Scotland do have the talent and, and can pull the strings. It's just whether everything clicks for them. If they can stay in the game, if they can hang in the game and pressurise France, who are going to have to go for absolutely every chance possible and score tries. It, it's going to be really interesting to see how, how it unfolds. Um, but look, the last time Scotland won in Paris was 1999. It's a long time ago, but you never know. Um, it's going to be a huge test match. Both teams with loads at stake and should be a cracking contest. And we mentioned a few weeks ago, Johnny, that you were responsible for Scotland's win over France last year. So you were at the Stade de France at the weekend. What have you pinpointed? What have you told Gregor this week? I haven't spoken to Gregor, mate. My phone hasn't been going. Um, <laughs> yet. Yet, no, yet. no, it won't go. But but look, from, from when that phone call happened, France have evolved and they've gotten better. There were question marks over Mohamed Huas and his scrummaging. Those question marks are no longer there. At test match level, he's solid as a rock. He struggled a little bit against Ireland, but apart from that, he's been absolutely fine. The blitz defence they one had, once had is gone. They don't blitz anymore. Certainly against Wales, they were extremely passive. So if you're Gregor Townsend, you're going to be looking at ways to attack that passive defence, get early go forward, and then get a stranglehold on the ball. If you can get France on the back foot, they're like any other team. If you come out of a scrum like Benji, you know this, you're trying to get around the corner to defend, but if you've already gone back 10 metres, it's incredibly hard to get around the corner and get a next dominant tackle. So Never been uh, back 10 metres, mate. Don't worry about that. <laughs> never have so been, look, never will. So look, there's going to be these little things that have come up from the Welsh game that they'll pinpoint. They're, they're smart. They've got good analysis. Like Finn Russell, again, a guy that was carrying the water, but he's a smart cookie. He'll analyse these things with Stuart Hogg. They'll sit down with Gregor. They'll, they'll get their starter plays organised. If they can get these launch plays, they can put France under pressure. It's about generating that platform, getting into the right areas, grinding them down because defensively, France have been so good at dominating collisions in the Six Nations. But it's about that first phase. The key for me is getting over the gain line and then stressing them. If you can do that, there's a chance of hanging in the game. If not, you're, you're gone, you're cooked because they're that physical and that abrasive. So look, it's a huge game. Um, loads of different ways to try and test this France team, but I don't think they'll be as passive in the way they were against Wales. 
And Benji, the flip side, I don't know if you've ever had to do it as a player, chase a try bonus point and a certain margin, but we know France are capable of scoring four tries against Scotland. We know they're capable of winning by 21, but when you know that going into a game psychologically, is there a danger that they chase too early? Honestly, that's, well, I don't know what you think, Johnny, but I was never, ever um, told before a game we need to win by X amount of of, of points, even yeah, though it was the reality. That's nine and 10 and captain who know that, right? I'm a hooker. I'm here to to do my job, get, you know, get the step-by-step sort of thing, build the house first, then you're going to want to build the terrace and all that stuff. And I re- really do reckon that's that's the way they're going to address the game, just because there's no way around it. Or for a tight five forward, if you try to give me a game plan after, what, 65 seconds of the game, it's gone <laughs> anyhow. So, you know, it's, it's just not going to happen. So what you're saying, Benji, is they're going to spend the entirety of this week Telling the front five that there's no there's no four tries there's no twenty one. No, they're margin. gonna tell. They're gonna say. They're gonna say. Help us do your job yeah. the best in the world that you've ever done for that perfect game because we all need a p- perfect performance and there's nothing better for tight five to be like. Don't worry about the scores. Don't worry about the tries. Don't worry about the numbers. Worry about exactly doing your job first and excelling at it because Scotland are extraordinary. But Hamish Watson, however good he is, cannot chase Aldrit if his scrum is going backwards, right? Uh, Finn Russell is just extraordinary. But if every single ruck um, speed is, is, is slowed down, then he's not going to be able to play. Stuart Ogg is one hell of a player. But every time he gets a bomb uh, up, up in the air, if there's seven forward, French forwards who are there to chop him in pieces, he's not going to do any stepping. You know what I mean? So that, that's basically the mentality that's going to be behind it. And if there's one lesson from the Wales game is that four tries can be scored very quick, right? I mean, I think there was about four, five or six tries scored from both sides in the first half. And then France got held up four times. So there was potentially like 13 uh, sort of op- uh, opportunities of scoring a try. So they will be like, build the game, build a demolishing game. Like we said, they know how to win differently. And when you play Scotland, you don't want to play the same game. They want to be a hybrid of what they played against England and against, uh, against Wales. You need to up the physicality because you need to be there to dominate. But at the same time, you need to be on your feet. And that's why actually I was thinking about it. You had Tom, Tao and, and, and Willem start against, uh, against Wales. Would have they uh, picked the same locks to play Scotland? I'm actually not sure. You need, well, Bernard Lowe is Bernard Lowe. So obviously if he was fit, he would have been there. But that's why they like him so much because he's got that hybrid thing. He's a warrior that can run for days. And that's ideal. And Swan Rebage, I'm a big fan of him. He can run for days. He's a bit like Ian Anderson, like Tag Byrne. You know, he's that sort of four who can play six. He can run all day and just a grafter that, that, that does, goes through a lot of work. And that's what you need against Scotland. So no strategy behind it is going to be build the game. And then obviously in the last 20 minutes, the decision making will be based on how many points do we need, yes or no. But for the first 60, it's a huge game like every, every other. I think the key to this we understand is that you give type five forwards the least amount of information possible you just say <laughs> go out and do your own well no you tell them you tell them where the aftermatch food is that's yeah. about it you know where the apparel is after the game but that's pretty much it look I, again it'll come down to they'll get into like a third of if scotland's third and it'll be a case of three points or kick to the corner and maul them to death um, and that's it that's where the type five comes in and that's where the decision making will be a, a decision that's made pre-game we refuse all three points. We have to go out and smash them. So it's how many seven-pointers can we get on the board? I, I can't see that. Well, if it was me, I couldn't see them chipping away with threes or trying to build a score. You just have to rattle away with as many seven-point options as you can. So look, it's going to be an amazing contest. Um, and looking forward to being there on Friday night. It should be awesome. Hello, I'm Garrett Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. 
And this is your official invite to come and join our brand new cycling club. Now, good news, it's a podcast too. So you can come and listen to us, try and build this club from scratch. And we'll have a few familiar faces joining us for the ride too. Right, G, time to tell everyone what we've called this club. Well, we thought long and hard about this. So we come up with a strong original name that really stands out. The Garen Thomas Cycling Club. Yeah, I suppose it's easy to remember at least, isn't it? We will have new episodes for you every single Tuesday. Come and join us. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And Benji, just a quick word on where you were in Dublin, working for French TV on the Ireland-England game. What did you make of it? I spoke to a couple of guys like Alan Quinlan and Shane Jennings who just left Leicester Tigers when I, I joined two lovely blokes and they were really scared that it, that pissed off England if they play as well as the first half against France were really going to do some damage uh, to the Irish side who were missing James Ryan who were missing uh, Gary Ringrose you know so all those things but bloody hell they played well Poor, they they played with their hearts um, they they really really fronted up the, uh, physically and I think you got the the old Irish side that annoyed the hell out of you, but you sort of had to respect. Uh, on every kickoff, there was a guy coming on the other side of the pod. I saw Tag Byrne at the smart, one point. Eh? You know, he was there. He's very smart. And the Irish have always been like that. They're just clever warriors. They did some funny things around the the, the mole. And I think there was a, at least four or five choke tackles, you know, when you win the ball by, by, by getting them out. Everybody's trying to do them for some whatever reason. They're just the absolute best at it. So now there was is a hell of a game, and you can sum it up by the two first tries in the first half. The first try is just strategic brilliance. They see that Tom Curry chases out, flick it back in. Keith Earls sidesteps Johnny May and just drops him like like a like a tight <laughs> like a tight head. It was unreal. He really burned them. It was beautiful. And then the second one is about thirty phases of play, but for the first eighteen phases. Wow, England were chopping them in pieces. Curry, Wilson, uh, Itoje, Billy, they, um, what's his name? Luke Komandiki. They were just chopping people in half. And I was like, I was feeling that like I was playing for Clermont again, where our main problem was that we didn't know when to keep on playing to sort of build and find an edge and when to like, right, let's let's play secure, kick it up, kick it in the corner. Let's just not be foolish. And I was thinking, oh, they're overplaying, overplaying. And then they were right. <laughs> and they overplayed to the point where they found a, a gap Tak Furlan, who at the moment is, is, is pretty good, I have to say, finds a, a beautiful offload and then they score a wonderful try. And I was thinking, that that's a serious side. That's a serious side who can basically keep on going. And they just bullied England to the end. And then England just lost their shape. So lost their shape, lost their leadership, lost their way. Uh, and if you front up with them physically, then they've got no plan B. That's, that's sort of the way that I saw it. So there was a bit of that. There was a beautiful moment at the end, CJ Stander, uh, just to say thank you and all that. So no, no, I was I was really really happy to be there. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful ground. It's a different game than in Wales. A lot more hits and a lot more physicality, um, but it was it was a hell of a game. And a lot of emotion at the ground because of CJ Stander's announcement. Presumably, you were both shocked by that last week. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, 
I, I don't know what you made out of it, Johnny. I did not see that one coming for one because he's only what well, he's only thirty, I think. Thirty-one in April. I think I think he's he's a very solid player who doesn't have anything to prove, and if. If you listen to what he's saying is that he wants to go back to Safa because the family sacrifices are there. You just got to respect that. So whatever you think about it, whatever you believe, if that's the case, that he wants to go home to raise his child in Safa next to, I'm guessing, his parents, his wife's parents and their families and friends, then fair enough. Rugby is an absolutely fantastic um, sport and I loved every second of it. But rugby is not your whole life. So if a, a, an international player can tell you, right, I adore rugby, but my family, my life is more important then. I think it's a very important statement that you just made and let's hope a few people basically listen to it a bit more. There's loads of things that come into it though. Like I generally don't agree with project players. I think it's great that they're kicking up the rules to, to five years. It potentially should be longer. Um, but he's one of the ones that has come across and rolled up his sleeve and he's been world-class. Like he has been top, top class for Munster and for Ireland. Again, top carrier in the tournament this year by, I think, something like 10, 15 carries. Top carrier in four of the last five Six Nations. Yeah, he's just an absolute, he's a machine. Like, he's got his role. He's like a Terminator. He knows exactly what he's doing. You just tell him, where, and he does it. He does it really, really well. British line, I think a lot of people would also like to see him. He's performed so well. Could he finish on a British lines tour this summer? Um, and, and look, he's just been, in terms of the class and the way he's gone about his business, he's been superb. I think again, when you bring into you bring COVID into it, the situation that we're going through, all of his family, his wife and kid are back home. That's got to be hard, and obviously that's a massive part of his decision making. Otherwise, you'd have to think if they were over there, if the family was in Ireland, he'd keep on going. And that's it. We don't know now if COVID's going to stop. We we don't know if we're going where we're going to be at the end of the year, and needs to get back to his family. Simply, um, there's been a lot of really negative and quite narky press in Ireland as well around the financials of, of what actually the fallout will be. There's all sorts of rules in Ireland. Benji, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there's a lot of reasons as to why Irish players haven't come over to France because if they stay and they earn in Ireland and then they retire in Ireland, they get a big um, retirement balloon payment at the end of their career. So you get 10% of all the tax that you've paid back if you if you finish in Ireland after playing in Ireland. That's how they retain O'Driscoll and all these guys never came over to France because the, the, the Irish government helps out in that manner. So I've got an, an announcement to make. I'm a, turd, I'm a turd Irish and I'm going to turn back to Dublin just and turd, come out mate. from a retirement to, remire, to retire again. Oh, that would be beautiful. Oh. The, I know. So a, a crazy way to finish and, and really lucrative. That's how they retain their talent. So the narky side of Irish press is saying, is he just doing this and announcing this, retiring, and then is he going to play elsewhere? The hope is, look, he's shown so much class through his career his decision is a family decision. He goes out on an absolute high, top of the game. He's just smashed England and he walks out with his held high, gets back to his family in South Africa and lives the rest of his life, as you said, because some things are more important. So look, he was horrible to play against in the nicest possible sense because he's a class operator, loved by all of his teammates as well. And he's been world-class for Ireland. And from an English perspective, what was the the kind of vibe in the in the stadium presumably not good Benji but the English media is obviously going wild at the moment with stories of Eddie Jones obviously having a break clause in his contract talk of whether he should go I don't I don't see Eddie Jones going anywhere to be honest but um but there, there's big changes that need to be done uh there is obviously some rotation within the squad need to be done but look last week for the first 40 minutes we, we I, I was raving over how good they can be when they start playing. 
So I think there's, there might be a little bit of tiredness, or maybe lack of leadership, a little bit of extra boost that needs to be brought in, maybe in the coaching staff, maybe in the in the speech, or maybe having a less imposing presence, dominant presence of Eddie Jones. Maybe, I don't know. But he's definitely a good coach. They're definitely a great side. They're just not on a good good run at all at the moment. They had nothing to win or to lose. I think they saved their honor by beating France last week. Um, and you could tell that they gave up pretty pretty quick uh, in, in the second half. I mean, uh, Mako Vunipola and, and Luke Kowendeki got subbed off at halftime. That's when he's really not happy. Um, and I think they've been repeating, you know, there's the whole chat around the Simmons brothers and all that. But then Eddie Jones was saying, right, the reason why we're not picking them is because they're not allowed to pick outside their 30-ish whatever man squad that they picked from the start which is what it brings back to my point. That's what France have been doing for the last couple of weeks. They've, they've not been, they've been picking in and out and when they need to. So I don't see Eddie Jones going anywhere. I think the criticism are, are, are valid because England needs to, 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 to shake things up. The only thing is, again, I think Eddie Jones is just trying to wind me personally up because he's now like, oh yeah, we're in the transformation phase and uh, we've got to shake things up. Okay. All right. It's easy to say it now because that's the only way up, right? So, no, I don't see him going anywhere. I think England will, will be fine in the future, but now they've got properly their heads, you know, in the mud and 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 they need to and they need to realize that change is, is needed. Well, look, obviously the big, he came out in the press yesterday and said, we're going through a reset, but they haven't reset anything. He's changed three personnel in his team that there's been no change at all. So if you're going through a reset, I think using the COVID bubble is an excuse. I think you just get through, you make your changes. There are players on form. And when I say on form, there are players on fire in England right now that he's refused to pick. And you could name five or six or seven between Don Brandt, between Simmons brothers. There's loads of guys that haven't even been part of a squad and haven't had any game time at all. So when you say reset, that's what the debate has been about. There's been no reset or no change. So ultimately, if he's going to stay... He has to, like you said, Benji, either make changes in the sort of brain box of his staff. He's going to have to make assistant coach level changes or he has to make vast changes in his playing squad. He has to give other people a chance. He's given maybe three people in the past two, three tests a different role and that's it. So ultimately, if he's going to keep his job, I think his employers, the RFU, are going to say, look, mate, there have to be, especially before the 2023 comes around, we have to experiment you have to change personnel on different levels, otherwise you're going to go. And look, the RFU are the first ones to say, oh, you know, we don't have the cash. They have the cash. They can afford to pay Eddie Jones out. So if they make that decision, it will go through, but we'll see over the next couple of months what happens. And Eddie's the first one. I remember an interview he did with Lawrence Delalio ages ago about how he stayed on for too long with the Australia side. So he re-signed a contract and went through a second cycle. And with hindsight, he said... No, no, mate, I, I just, I stayed too long and I should have just fallen on my sword or worked something out and left. And that's exactly the stage he's at now with England. So it's how far does it go? How's that conversation led? And what is actually going to happen? Because it's happened before with Eddie with Australia. The same thing is now happening with England. Right. Let's get your predictions officially locked in for the one remaining game in the Six Nations this weekend then, because we've joined forces with the Guinness Pint Predictor on Match Pint during the tournament. So anyone listening can join in and compete against you guys. If you want to have a go, just download the Matchpoint app, predict the scores, beat your mates and win a whole load of great rugby prizes. And to compete against Johnny and Benji, all you need to do is enter our private league with the code LaRugby. Do we know who is ahead out of the two of you? I've been shocking. (laughs) 
No, but look, listen, the, the, the prediction for, for this week is is pretty straightforward. Um, we want to win by France. They need to win by 21 points, so that's it. Done. <laughs> I don't think they're going to get more, more than that on the table, so I reckon France will win 31 by 10. I can tell you, you're ahead, Benji. You're ahead of Johnny by four points. Of course I am. So Benji's going for a 21-point France win. Johnny, what do you reckon? I, I can't... <laughs> I can't see the 21 points, um, but I can see them getting a bonus point. But I can't see them winning by 21. What's the margin? I'm going to go... Frank, look, we've already talked about how they're going to have to play. They're going to kick things. It's going to be a high-scoring game, but I just can't see it being a gap of 21 points. I think that would be catastrophic for Scotland um, after the tournament they've had. So I'm going to go France by nine. And then I'm going to do Scottish podcast later and say Scotland by five. <laughs> <laughs> and just quickly before we go, uh, we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but Stad have confirmed that Gail Fiku is off, haven't they? So is he signing a four-year deal with wrestling? Yeah, he is. Benji, do you know, has he had a check from Stad Francais before that's gone through? Because if he's had a check from Stad Francais to leave and then he signed four years at Wrestling 92, that is incredible work from Gail Fiku. Has he had a check or not? What's going to happen is that he's he's going to leave by taking a small pay cut, but not a massive pay cut. And I think if there's a check from Stad, a small check, that can compensate a little a bit of what, Basically, it's it's a fantastic signing for racing because they're getting a world-class player who's a top dude, who still lives in Paris, doesn't need to move, who's only going to have the partnership with Vakatawa, which oh. is mouth-watering. Mouth My only issue is they're going to be called up in international duty a lot. So you have your whole center field who's going to be gone for a while so he signed four years yes but the whole 2023 year he's going to be on so much international duty the both of them that you're hardly going to see them on the racing jersey so basically it's it's, it's just a good move I, i'm not sure that gail is going to be that much m- even more wealthier after that move but it's just it's just a great move for racing if they can afford to get somebody like that obviously they're letting go teddy toma they're letting go doncha ryan they're letting go simon zebo so they're getting a bit more money um, but it's um, it's 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 Stade Francais trying to play down a little bit their budget. They made a huge effort on Gael Fiku from to to go and get him from Toulouse, and they just have to downsize a tiny bit. Thanks, Benji. Thanks, Johnny, and a big thanks to all of you for listening as well. Make sure you hit subscribe, leave us a nice review, and we will be back with another episode after the Kaiser BT Derby this weekend. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers, fellas. Bye. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.